Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week it's all about CO2, finding CO2 across the universe and also making it. Now often we think about CO2 as a bad thing, but actually CO2 on Mars could be incredibly useful for helping us produce air that crude missions would need to breathe to survive on Mars for an extended period. Plus, finding CO2 traces across the universe has actually been really difficult, but the new space telescope WST starts to shed some light on formation of exoplanets. Now, one of the problems with any kind of expedition is being prepared, having enough of whatever you need with you to do what you're about to set out to do. Whether that's going for a long bike ride, hiking in a long trail in the wilderness or in nature, or even sailing out to sail on a boat, you need to make sure that you bring enough with you, either enough clothing, enough food, enough shelter. Now, in space, it's exactly the same problem, but you also need to make sure you bring enough energy with you. You've got to have a fuel source to power all of your propulsion and also all of your electronics and life support equipment. And by the way, all that life support equipment needs things that you need to survive, along with all your equipment. And one of the things that humans, of course, need to survive is oxygen. Now, This is one of the sad realities of space travel and what makes it so difficult. Humans need a lot of stuff to sustain them. As opposed to robots, well, in those non-crewed missions of space exploration, they're comparatively easy because all you have to worry about is electricity for those systems. Maybe some other process like equipment, but mostly just keeping things running with electricity and not getting it get too hot or too cold. Humans are much more finicky. Our acceptable range of temperatures is much smaller, and our requirements for food and fuel are much higher. So finding some way to produce the things we need as we're on another planet, for example, it would be so beneficial. This concept of living off the land or living with nature is useful if you know what kind of foods and fruits to eat if you're exploring out in the wilderness. But that doesn't quite work on, say, the moon, where there's nothing there, or Mars. But that's not quite exactly true. Like, perhaps there is some way to get some of the things we need, like, say, water or oxygen, from there. And that's exactly what researchers tried to investigate on Mars as part of the NASA's Perseverance rover mission. Because Perseverance, aside from having a lot of amazing science going on in it, also had a special type of experiment called MOXIE. Now, MOXIE was led by MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and it was named the Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. Most of the time, scientists like to come up with absurd names to justify a cool-sounding acronym. In this case, MOXIE. Now, the idea here with MOXIE, which has just been tested and summarized in the journal Science Advances, was really to investigate what could be produced in situ, to use the resources, or want of a better word, live off the land on Mars, in preparation for any future human Mars missions. By setting a rover and seeing what could actually practically make on the Martian surface, it definitely helps scientists plan out how much stuff to bring with them. Now, if you've seen The Martian or you've read a lot of science fiction, you know that maybe people could grow crops on Mars or do a number of things. Well, this research tries to make some of that science fact and see what actually could be done and hopefully allow NASA or other agencies to scale that up ahead of a human mission to the planet. Now, lead author in this paper was Jeffrey Hoffman, but it was a pretty wide-ranging team at MIT, obviously also involving actual researchers involved in NASA and on the probe itself. 
Now, on Perseverance, I actually ran a number of these test experiments. In fact, they were able to do seven experimental runs, and they tried to do this in a variety of different atmospheric conditions during the day and during the night, and also during the different seasons, such as they are on Mars. And in each of these experimental setup runs, what the robot tried to do in this case was produce some amount of oxygen basically in line with what could be produced by a small moderate sized tree here on earth that equates to around six grams of oxygen per hour now that doesn't seem like a lot but it is how much oxygen a tree generally produces here on earth now it's not a lot for the purposes of, of keeping a human alive because a human needs more than one tree to keep them alive but for the purpose of proving that you can produce oxygen on mars it's a good first point and in these various conditions it was able to achieve that with a steady output now of course you would want to scale this up a hell of a lot but it's useful to explore as kind of a proof of concept whether or not you can use the resources available the planet's materials in this case carbon dioxide on mars and using it to make resources like oxygen saving you a lot of weight now how this works is of course just a small setup so because i had to try and feed it and squeeze it on board the perseverance rover amongst all of its other equipment for its mission well it's a pretty small unit now it's built to run only for a short period of time starting up and shutting down basically each run whenever the robot's mission responsibilities and schedule allow for it this is not at all the case for what you would have on any crewed mission to Mars service, which would be producing oxygen at a much larger rate and actually would probably run continuously, not in fits and bursts. But it did prove that you could reliably and efficiently convert Mars's atmosphere into pure oxygen. Now, what it does is draw, actually, the Martian air through a filter. That's important because Mars is a pretty dusty place. So the idea here is you want to get out all of that dust and dirt and filter out contaminants. Once you've got that cleaner air or Martian air, you then pressurize it. And so to do that, you then basically close and seal the tank and boost it to a pressure and then send it through a solid oxide electrolyzer or SOX, again, another fun acronym. This is an instrument developed by Oxion Energy, which splits that carbon dioxide rich air into oxygen ions and carbon monoxide. Now, this is basically a sort of a general type of catalytic electrolyzer, which uses solid oxide as, it, as its primary means for doing that cleaving or splitting of the carbon dioxide into the component oxygen and carbon. Now, this just generates oxygen ions. So they're on their own. They're not in the O2 form molecular oxygen that we would normally find it. So you have to then isolate these oxygen ions away from the carbon monoxide and then squeeze them together, combine them to form O2, the molecular oxygen that we would generally breathe. Now, that's what the MOXIE measurement did. And then it measured and assessed the quantity and purity of the air before releasing it back out into the Martian atmosphere as opposed to trying to store it. This is because, well, it's a tiny experiment. It's not actually trying to generate a tank full of air, but you could see how if this was repeated that you could probably actually generate a large tank of air. Now, of course, it takes a long time to do so. Even just powering up MOXIE took a few hours to warm up the system and then another hour to make oxygen, then a power down cycle as well. Now, it means that they basically were doing a couple hour shifts to just produce a little bit of oxygen, the six grams for this particular experiment. And that enabled them to do it at different times of day and night. 
Now, this was important because there's a lot of changes in Martian atmosphere. The Martian atmosphere is less dense than ours. It doesn't have a magnetic field keeping all that gases in, but it means that the density of air can vary by a factor of two almost through the year. And temperature can vary huge amounts as well. So this is really important if you're trying to actually develop a stable process. Now, in any time of the day, in any time of the Martian year, they actually prove that it is possible to prove that you can make air, or breathable air, that is, oxygen, on the Martian surface. So as they've proven through this particular electrolyzer that it's possible to generate air on the Martian surface, that is an important step. Now, how much you can actually practically produce and how energy intensive it is, is another question. Now, whilst it may have survived these small test runs, the next part is, can it run consistently over a long period of time, even when it's subject to thermal stress that can degrade the system, clogging up with dust and so on. But if you can make all the oxygen that you need on Mars, or at least some of it, that is a massive improvement because it just means you don't have to lug all that gas with you. And also means your mission time can be extended because you're not afraid of running out of air or relying on energy-intensive oxygen scrubbers. Now, this is some pretty amazing science that's actually been conducted on the surface of Mars to prove that it is possible to stably produce oxygen in a form that we could breathe like a tree on Mars. Now, of course, it doesn't mean growing trees, it uses electrolyzer processes, but it's a pretty amazing proof of concept to show that it is possible to actually produce breathable air or least oxygen on the surface of Mars. Done on part of the Perseverance mission with NASA, published by Massachusetts Technologies in the journal Science Advances with lead author Jeffrey Hoffman and a large team of collaborators. James Webb Space Telescope has been finding all kinds of amazing pictures, but has also been turning its attention to planets or exoplanets that we have been exploring and studying for a little while now. Now, one of them in particular that we've talked about several times in its podcast over the duration of its first discovery in 2011, but also in later years as it has been investigated for all kinds of things, is WASP-39b. Now, WASP-39b is the typical hot Jupiter if we call it. It's an exoplanet that's a gas giant, roughly one quarter the size of Jupiter, around the same size as Saturn, let's call it. But its diameter is actually bigger than that of Jupiter. So it's really puffy, less dense than Jupiter, but actually bigger, almost a little bit bigger in size. One of the reasons that this so unusual system is because, well, it orbits incredibly closely to the star WASP-39. Now, this is meaning more specifically that WASP-39b, this gas giant, is orbiting around one-eighth the distance between the Sun and Mercury. So it's already pretty scary to think about how close Mercury is to the Sun. Now imagine cutting that into eighths. That's how close WASP-39b is orbiting to its star. It's just absurdly close. Completing a full circuit just takes four normal Earth days, 24-hour periods. So that's nuts. Now, as a planet, it's pretty incredible, and it was actually detected by ground-based observations by looking for the periodic transiting dimming of the light from its host star. It was kind of a proof of concept and a pretty famous case of it of planet transits passing in front of the star. And since then, discovery in 2011, we've turned all kinds of observatories to it. 
of course, from Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescopes, along with a whole bunch of ground-based telescopes. Now, with these missions and telescopes, you can see a couple of things. For example, the presence of water vapor, sodium, potassium in the planet's atmosphere. This is possible because you can do basically spectroscopy by looking at the light that is reflected off. Now, the JWST, on the other hand, has some incredibly highly sensitive infrared instruments as well, which give us a range of looking at other molecular compounds that we otherwise couldn't see just relying on visible light. And that has meant that researchers have just published in the journal Nature, and part of the JWST team, with lead author Ethan Marie Aho and others involved all from Cornell University and a number of other research institutes as part of the JWS science team, have outlined how they've managed to actually discover and identify carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of this exoplanet. Now, one of the reasons why finding carbon dioxide is pretty interesting is because it gives a lot of hints about the planet formation process, and in particular, exoplanet formation. Now, in, when you think about CO2 on Earth, we think about global warming, and that's true, but actually in terms of planets, atmospheres, CO2 is also an indicator of metal enrichment. Again, in the chemistry sense of metals, or astronomy sense of metals, really, that anything heavier than helium, right? And that includes anything being measured with a metallicity. So when you think about the atmospheres forming in these gas giants, you want to try to measure how much metal or heavier than helium elements are actually forming there. And because you can get this on a hot gas giant and pick up using different types of measurements, it also helps you learn more about what might be happening in the exoplanets around that gas giant. So if the gas giant is able to have these heavier gases there, well, this might suggest that the exoplanets around or moons could also have others. Now, this is a pretty interesting thing because once you have a good idea about the spectrum or the type of gases found around an exoplanet, you can start to understand the kind of other chemical compounds and elements that you will find scattered through this system, how the planets will form and what that might mean for the formation of exoplanets, rocky exoplanets with atmospheres, things that we're obviously pretty interested in for the hunt, of course, for life across the universe. So how do these researchers actually detect CO2 so far away? Well, it relied on a lot of the precise instrumentation on the JWST that has been released pretty quickly, you know, with some of the most early data results from it as part of the early release science program. Now, when a transiting planet goes in front of its host star, this gives the researchers some pretty good opportunities to do analysis on their planet's atmosphere because some of the starlight is basically eclipsed by the planet. And that causes the overall dimming that enables us to spot it in the first place. That's good. But some of that starlight around, like the edge, is actually transiting through the planet's atmosphere. And because different gases absorb different combination of colors and light, you can analyze those small differences around the wings, effectively the edge of the planet when it does that transit. And you can determine the wavelengths and spectrum coming back and tell us what that light actually is made of what it is passed through on this journey that gives us the reflection colors that we see. Now, WASP-39b is pretty special because it's really not that dense, but it's huge and it transits a lot, like really, really quickly. So this combination of being really big, not that dense, so you get a lot of sun through and happening a lot because of frequent transits means it's basically like the ideal test target to point a telescope at and try and do this kind of transmission spectroscopy. 
So if you wanted to calibrate and see just how good the JWST is at this analysis, well, what better place to turn? And this was really done to really test out the near-infrared spectrograph, NERSPEC, on the JWST. And so they used this 39B, a planet that has been studied in the past pretty extensively, and see if they could see anything extra in it. And what they saw was a small hill in the, in the range of 4.1 to 4.6 microns. And this is the first detailed evidence ever detected for carbon dioxide being present in a planet outside of our solar system. And this is because normally, actually, it's really hard to try and get such a subtle difference in brightness in this 3 to 5.5 micron range. No one has actually managed to analyze that area of the spectrum before because we haven't had any instruments good enough to measure it. So this is the first real case of actually picking up such subtle differences in a transmission or transit spectrum before. And when you do use such finely tuned instruments to pick this stuff up, you can actually find some pretty amazing things. In this case, we've actually found the composition of CO2. And that's great because not only is it the first time we've seen CO2 out there in the universe, aside from our solar system, it also proves a lot of things that we're trying to understand about exoplanet formation. Getting such a clear signal of carbon dioxide means that you could use the same technique as well, point it at other targets, maybe less easy to find targets. So a great way of calibrating the process. And you can actually use the carbon dioxide as well to sort of get an insight into how much solid to how much gaseous material is involved in the planet formation process as well. Picking up carbon dioxide enables you to look at basically the composition process of these exoplanets and how they're formed. Training it on a good target like 39b is useful as well because then you can point it at other targets and see how those exoplanet systems may have been formed. So by pointing this new telescope at a known target like WASP-39b, we can learn a lot more about not only that particular planet, but also how planets and exoplanets might be formed across the universe, all by getting our first clear reading of something that we know is out there, carbon dioxide. We know it has to exist out there. But now we have really good spectral proof for the first time. And now we can use these techniques to go look at other planets and learn how other exoplanets and other star systems may have formed. This is some great research published very early by NASA in the journal Nature as part of the JWST Early Science Release Program. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Detecting CO2 across the universe, helping shed light on the formation of exoplanets, plus turning CO2 into actual breathable oxygen on the surface of Mars. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.